I want to uh, read Genesis 37, the best part of it, to you, to begin a new series in the life of Joseph. And this is the, the entry point into his story, the introduction to him as a young man, and the disastrous things that began to happen to him right in the earliest pages of his story. So let's read Genesis 37. Jacob, is Joseph's father, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. and When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, or it can be translated this master of dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 
Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now I want to begin by uh, putting this story into context. What's going on? Who is Joseph? And where does he sit in the storyline? The book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, essentially traces the story of the earliest lineage of faith. If we think of who we are as God's people, we're the family of God. It's now a global family that stretches all around the world. But it's also a historic family that stretches right back into time and really originates in the pages of Genesis, where you begin to trace the lineage of faith from Adam through uh, various individuals who knew God. And really it begins to take shape with Abraham. And Abraham has a son called Isaac, and Isaac has a son called Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob together are described as the patriarchs. Jacob is the father of 12 sons. He has two wives and two handmaids, a question we'll leave for another day, and multiple sons from all of these women. And of the 12 sons that he has, these 12, of course, being uh, the heads of the tribes that will emerge as the family grows in the centuries to follow, but now it's just one family made up of lots of sons. These 12 are, from the order down, they go right down to number 11, you get Joseph. And the reason why Joseph is special is because of the wives that Jacob married, two of them are these sisters, Leah and Rachel. He accidentally married Leah, also a story for another day. And uh, the one he really wanted was the younger sister, the beautiful sister, Rachel. Leah ends up having loads of kids. Rachel seems to be unable to bear a child. And eventually, in their old age, she bears Joseph. Because of Jacob's affection for Rachel, uh, Joseph is really the apple of his eye. And he becomes this favored son. And so... Joseph, it's very interesting, the book of Genesis focuses an enormous amount of time and attention upon this one individual. There's 13 or 14 chapters. It's almost a third of the book of Genesis is devoted to um, this man's story, this one man's story. And it's a little bit puzzling on the surface of things. Why is the Bible, why is God so interested in this individual? And there are a number of reasons why, why that's the case. One is that... Um, you can't understand the history of God's people without understanding how this boy ended up in Egypt and how that had long-term, centuries-long consequences for God's people who ended up with slaves in Egypt. So that's part of it. It just gives you a little bit of the history. It's also partly because it's just an extraordinary story. I'd urge you to go home and read it. It's from chapter 37 right to the end of the book of Genesis. And there's something, I mean, anyone who's known and read this story will agree that it's captivating. And extraordinary and beautiful. But I believe the main reason why the story of Joseph is recounted in so much detail, and the main reason why we should pay so much attention to it, is because it's not really about Joseph. The story is really about God. And it shows and reveals something of the hiddenness of the sovereign God and the way that he works in the life. Sometimes the Bible tells stories in grand sweep of narrative over centuries and shows you God's workings and his hands across, across great eons of time. But here, as we, as we zoom into just one man's story, we see the hidden hand of God at work in the life of an individual. 
We see him moving and shaping and directing his life and bringing him through experiences that are formative and transformative to him and which bring salvation and freedom to others. And so when you read this story, it's a little bit like if any of you are a film buff, so if you know a film buff, a, film, a, a real movie buff is someone, they're not just interested in individual movies. They're the ones who read the credits, and they're interested particularly in the work and the, the kind of work of directors. And so if you sit down and, re- and watch all the movies from a particular director, let's say you, you want to study the films of Terence Malick or of uh, Christopher Nolan or of Steven Spielberg, it becomes less about the individual films and more about the, the creator, his mind, his purpose, the things that he's interested in, the messages he wants to get through. And you begin to see that particular director's fingerprints all over the stories that he creates. And something like that is happening when we read the stories of Scripture. They're full of interesting characters, flawed people. The Bible never whitewashes the characters of that are given in scripture even though they're heroes they're deeply flawed heroes and therefore people we can identify with but the stories are much less about them than they are about the God who is at work behind the scenes and the things he's doing in the lives of these many individuals and the reason why I'm stressing this right at the outset of this of this uh, series is this that I believe this is of extraordinary importance to the life of anyone who wants to walk with God The God who was at work in Joseph's life is the same God who's at work in your life today. His work, as you'll see it unfolding in Joseph's life, you'll discover the experiences that he goes through that mirror your own. It's not, of course, that your life could ever be the same as his. But the same God is at work, and you see the same fingerprints This is what's so powerful about biblical narrative is you can identify with the characters and the experiences they go through and you can understand the ways of God because God doesn't change. There are patterns and ways of working. And this is why we can lift these narratives and understand them and apply them to our own lives and understand our lives better and walk with God more closely and know what it is that he wants of us in the short life that he's given to us. And walk with an upright heart when we see and resonate with the stories of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, in other words, I believe is going to speak through this. I have no doubt about that. That as we unfold the life of Joseph over a couple of months or so, God is going to speak to us and change us. Now what of this first episode then? What is it about? And really what I want to focus on today is the call of God. This story is really about what happens when God puts his finger on an individual and singles them out for his plans and purposes and intentions. And this is something that's very interesting to us as Christians because the Bible tells us that it is precisely that reason that we are Christians at all. God, you are not a Christian because you chose to follow Jesus. You're a Christian because God singled you out. That's what the Bible says. Now, to your experience and from your perspective, you say you you can understand the reasons that brought you into experience of God and why you then chose to follow Christ, and you can understand the steps, and you can tell your story from your perspective. I understand that. But the Bible tells us, look, step out of the picture, and you'll, you'll recognize that it was the call of God. God singled you out. And the Bible's emphatic on this point. 
For example, in Ephesians 1, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us, it says, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So when you see God put his hand on the life of Joseph, understand, friend, that that is an experience, in a sense, that's universal to every Christian in becoming part of God's family. God has chosen you, he's called you, singled you out, and he's invited you into his family. And also, as you begin to see God speak purpose into Joseph's life, that the calling that God speaks over Joseph is about the things that he wants him to do in this life. And the unique purposes and calling that he has, the Bible then also tells us that that is something that's true for every believer in Christ. The same book of Ephesians that I just read from says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what I'm trying to help you to see is here's the life of Joseph, a man called by God, singled out. And then God begins to do things in his life. And we need to understand what that looks like. Because, friend, if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, this is true of you also. God has called you, singled you out, and put purpose into your life. Something that's very specific to you. And therefore, the patterns that we see, the way that God deals with Joseph, I believe that God deals... These are universal things. These are things that are true of everyone who's a follower of Jesus. I'm not assuming that every one of you is a follower of Christ. Well, maybe you'll learn... A little bit about what it means to follow Jesus today from looking at how God works in our lives. Now, what is, how does this call work then? What does it mean to be set apart by God? What does it mean to be called and chosen? And what does God do in our lives when those things are true of us? Let me show you a few things that come out from this story. The first is this. Right at the outset, we have to acknowledge that God's choosing has nothing to do with our worthiness. God's choice, when God puts his hand on you, singles you out, calls you into his family, sets you apart for his purposes, this has nothing to do with your worthiness. And the reason why I say that, if you, are, you begin this story and understand this, ask this question, why Joseph? Why, why is Joseph set apart for greatness in the way that he is? Why is it that God singles this young man out? Why is he God's choice? Because the answer the answer has to be on the surface. We have no idea. There are so many reasons why Joseph is disqualified to be a man of God and someone called and set apart for God's purposes. Let me tell you a few of those reasons. He is presented to us here as a favored and spoiled child. Jacob, it tells us, loved him more than any other of his sons and made him a robe of many colors. You're meeting a young 17-year-old boy who has grown up, to use modern parlance, with privilege, favoritized, with unbelievable um, luxuries in comparison with his brothers. And this instantly means we dislike him, right? I mean... He's unlikable for other reasons also. Let me tell you what they are. He's blatantly unqualified to do much of anything with his life. You may have missed it, but one of the things that 
the author tells us right at the start was that he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So whereas all his other brothers are out grafting, Joseph, is he'd be a mummy's boy if his mum was still alive, but he's with his other mums, complex thing, leave it for another day. He's hanging out at home with the other mums, this kind of pampered boy, not prepared to do anything of any significance with his life. But at the same time, he's an obnoxious telltale. <laughs> Tells us that he brought a bad report of them. I'm not sure whether he's talking about his mums or his brothers, but the, the translation, a bad report, it could be an evil report, and it can mean that he was lying, exaggerating, distorting the things that he's reporting back to his father about his family. He's not, he's not a likable person. And then it really comes to a, a focus here with just how, what a brat he is when he begins to get these dreams. Now, the first time you can kind of forgive him, he has this dream and he sees sheaves of, of, of corn and of um, wheat in a field and sees 11 of them bowing down to him. And he, he you know, perhaps innocently relays this dream to his older brothers and tells them how they're all going to bow down to him at some point. Maybe it's naivety at this point. Maybe he's just an innocent, a 17-year-old, a little bit not worldly wise. But of course, he does it again. And the next time he has a dream, sees the stars, the sun and the moon all bowing down to him, it doesn't only include his, his brothers, it also includes his father and mother. Which mother? I have no idea. But one of the mothers who's still alive, bowing down to him. And the reason why, look, this is utterly ridiculous stuff. Because here he is in an honor culture where the old never bow to the young. Much later in the story of Joseph, we'll meet Jacob, his elderly, ancient father, meeting Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh pays respects to Jacob and not vice versa. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That's how honor cultures work. And yet here he is, a 17-year-old lad, telling his old, old father, you're going to bow down to me. And so unsurprisingly, no one likes him. Except his dad, of course, but even he's a bit irritated with him. And the picture is of this pampered, dishonest, arrogant, naive, stupid young boy. And the question is, why does God choose him? Now, even if that question hangs over his life, the fact is God does single him out. He begins to speak to him. As much as it was stupid of Joseph to relay these dreams to his family, the dreams do come from God. They originate from God. And by the way, it's worth bearing in mind that God does speak to us. He can speak to us. God can reveal the plans that he has over your life in all kinds of ways, not least through dreams. This boy isn't set apart because he's Jacob's favorite. He's not set apart because he's his own favorite either. He's set apart merely because God chooses him. And God's choice, this is one thing that you have to understand in Scripture. God's ways are not like ours. He's not interested in equality in the way that we are. His choice cannot be explained on human terms. God singles him out for no reason that we can understand or gather or explain. And that might strike you as somewhat unfair, and it ought to. 
until you begin to think about the way that God singled you out. The fact that God puts his hand on your life, much as he did with the hand of jo- on the life of Joseph. God chooses unworthy people, which feels unfair when you look at others and think, how come God's using him or her? And then you look at your own life and you realize, there's no worthiness in me either. In the New Testament, it's put like this. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I find this to be just an extraordinary reality. You look at your life and maybe you even dislike yourself. You think, I've, I've messed up in countless ways. I lack the necessary gifts. No one likes me. I don't like myself. And God says, I'll have him or her. And I'm going to make something of your life. And this is what you're seeing in the life of Joseph. This story is here for us because you have to understand this is how God works. He delights to work like this. He calls you into his family. He confers upon you the dignity of sonship. And then he begins to do things in your life you never would have thought possible or imaginable when you live a life that's consecrated to him. Anyone wants to serve God, God will use you. Anyone wants to live a life devotion to him, useful to him, serving him, accomplishing his purposes, God will use you. And it has nothing to do with your worthiness and everything to do with his grace and his power. This is what we see in the life of Joseph. This is what we see everywhere in scripture. The call of God is despite your unworthiness. So you can stop asking, why me? Just recognize this is how grace works. Things begin to get a bit darker, though, in the story of Joseph and as we understand how God's call works. And this brings me to a second thing that we see here. That God's choice, even if it sets you apart for his love and affection and favor, also distinguishes you and marks you out and puts a target on your back for the hatred of others. This is something so universally true in Scripture that I just cannot ignore this point when I see it here in the life of Joseph. That on the one hand, he's extraordinarily blessed and privileged to be singled out by God, favored in this way, chosen for his calling and purposes, to be his child, to do his will, but it comes at a cost. That the minute that Joseph is singled out, he becomes an object of hatred, doesn't he? Now, this is something so obvious and clear in the passage that I hardly need to restate it. But just look at what, what we're told here as we're being introduced to Joseph. And it keeps being repeated to us. Verse 3 and 4. That he was favored by, jo- by his father uh, Jacob. But then verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Immediately becomes an object of hatred. In verse 8, after he relays his dream, it says they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They already despised him. Now they're utterly livid. And it tells us after the third time, after he relays his second dream, it says his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. The, scripture, the scriptures teach us 
this is a universal truth that's applicable to every, every individual whom God singles out and calls. Firstly, to be a follower of Christ. And then also, when you're called to unique purposes in this world. Whenever God singles you out, it creates problems. We see it all through Scripture in the lives of individuals, right from the earliest pages of the Bible. I, I hardly need to enumerate for you the stories. But you think about Abel and how he's murdered by Cain. You think about Noah building his ark and being despised and mocked and hated by everyone else. There's something almost by definition that becomes unlikable in a person when they're called by God to be part of his family and, called, and then want to serve him. Now, you may think I'm stretching the point a little bit too far here, but this is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples about the cost of following him. Listen carefully to these words. In John 15, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. You think in Joseph's context, if he was just one of the lads, no different from his brothers, we'd never have learned his name. He would have just been blended into the background, perfectly liked, perfectly likable. But Jesus says, but because you are not of the world, in other words, because I've called you out, because I've made you distinct, because I've made you my own, because I've made you a follower of me. He says, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, friends, the reason why I'm drawing attention to this is because I believe that a Christian stands or falls based on whether they can accept this truth or not. Live with it. The call of God, by definition, makes you unique. The call of God on your life makes you different. Jesus says you're not of the world. There's something of this dynamic going on in the life of Joseph. For whatever reason, God puts his hand on him and singles him out and draws him out from his brothers. And immediately he becomes the object of hatred. This is such a common pattern in scripture. And friend, if you cannot accept this, look, let me state it negatively. When you desire the love of others, it becomes very difficult to obey Jesus. When you just want to be, blend in and be one of the lads like Joseph might have wanted and might have desired, it becomes impossible to follow God and do his, accomplish his purposes in your life. But Joseph's story, I believe, can strengthen and inspire you because yes, he becomes an object of hatred, but all of that is worked together by God in his plans and purposes to accomplish things in him that are not accomplished in others. I don't want to miss, by the way, before we move on, I don't want to miss the reality of the brothers and the hatred and how that speaks to us because these brothers, what's going on in their hearts? It tells us blatantly that they, they envy him, they are jealous of him. The Bible, I just want to make an aside, a side point here about this because this is such a problematic and common sin in our lives. We need to, we need to notice it before we move on with the story. The Bible tells us again and again what a poisonous thing envy is. 
Let me read you a couple of verses which underline this. Proverbs 14 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. James 3 puts it like this. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Why is envy such a poisonous thing? One preacher put it like this. He said, envy is a hive from which other sins swarm. Which is to say, you have all kinds of sins in your life as I do in mine. But one of the root sins that feeds all the other sins in our life is very often envy. This is something like what we're seeing going on in the story of Joseph. Putting Joseph aside for one second, thinking about his brothers. The brothers descend into dark wickedness in the way that they treat Joseph. And all of it emerges from this sin of envy and of jealousy. Why is envy the root of so much sin in our lives? It's partly because it causes extraordinary friction with others. When you harbor envy and resentment, it, begin, it turns into hatred in your heart and mind towards others. You might wish others harm or you might celebrate their downfall. And not only that, but it also rots you from the inside. It creates friction within your own heart. Envy is so often at the root of so much that goes wrong in a life. A compulsive drivenness to achieve. A discontentment with your present circumstances. That means you're constantly looking for more. Wanting to better yourself or better your situation. Self-pity where you sink into a, a, a puddle of moaning your situation, your condition. All of these things are fueled by envy. And this is something like what we're seeing in the life of Joseph's brothers. Now, that was just a side point. I want to leave that aside and focus again on Joseph. Remember, we're asking this question, what happens when God calls you and singles you out? Firstly, he calls you through no worthiness of your own. Secondly, when you're called, you're set apart to be loved by him, but it will, by definition, be being hated by others. And this brings me to the third thing that you see in the life of Joseph right at the outset, which is this. That when God calls you and calls you for purpose, God uses suffering in your life to prepare you for glory. Now, I want to approach this point by asking this question. When you look at Joseph and the suffering that he's about to enter into and that he endures, if you know the story, you'll know the episode after episode of the pain that he goes through. Who is the author of pain in Joseph's life? At one level, you could say it's all the people around him. There's his father who really created a problem for him by singling him out. There's his brothers, who I've just been describing their envy, which turns to wicked hatred. There's Potiphar's wife, and we'll get there at some point. And all these characters he, he, he meets who create problems for him that cause him pain, much of which is way beyond anything he deserved. But behind it all is the hand of God. That's what I was saying right at the outset. This is why this story is not really about Joseph. It's about God and it's about the way he deals with his children and the things he does and the things he brings about and why he brings these things about. Whether you come to see this or not can be absolutely definitive of what what happens in your heart and how you respond to pain. When you go through pain and you cannot understand 
the goodness of God and why God might have brought this about, it drives you away from him. But Joseph doesn't come to that conclusion. I hate it when people reveal the end of a film before I've seen it, but jumping right to the end of Joseph's story, one of the last things that we hear him say in the book of Genesis is speaking to his brothers after he's reconciled. And he says to them this striking statement, which I think is so important, you have to know it now to understand anything about what God is up to in his life. He says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. This is, this is decades later. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as, as they are to this day. Why does Joseph have to suffer so much as someone called by God to be his child and to serve him? And really the answer is this. That as we meet him, there is an enormous gulf between the character of this 17-year-old boy and the calling that God has over his life. The call that God puts on him carries extraordinary dignity and responsibility. He becomes one of the most powerful people in the world. He accomplishes things of unbelievable importance within the history of Scripture. He preserves God's people, essentially, by saving them. That's his calling. But as you know, we meet him as a 17-year-old with soft hands, an arrogant heart, totally unlikable, totally unprepared for responsibility. And that great gulf between the character of this young man and the calling that God confers on him, I think explains so much of what happens within the life of Joseph and why God treats him the way he does, why he exposes him to pain. Now, I believe this has universal application to the lives of Christians. When God found you, there was a gulf between your character, the form of your life, and what it is that he was calling you into. Firstly, to be his child, part of your calling. And the scripture talks about, Paul prays for believers to become worthy of the calling that they've received. So you get called long before you're worthy, then God wants to make you worthy of the calling. There's a great gulf between these things. What were you like when God found you, if indeed you're, you're a follower of Jesus? Isn't it true that every single one of us is selfish, self-centered, irresponsible, pursuing pleasure, pursuing our own temporary fulfillment, prideful, indulgent? All these things can be said of us, right? Your character. And what is it that Christ calls you to? Nothing short of imitating him, being sanctified and formed and transformed into his image to become Christ-like, bearing the sense of responsibility for the world that Christ himself carried, the love for all men, being humble, broken in spirit so that you don't consider yourself above others. Living a life of service, of pouring your life out for others, not sitting in self-pity and self-obsession. Can you see the, the massive difference there is between 
what you were like and what God called you to, the good works that he prepared for you. And then the question comes, well, how does God get you from there to there? And the answer that the Bible shows us time and time again is that he inflicts pain upon us. It's not the only tool that God uses to change us, but it's certainly the one that we're being introduced here to here in the life of Joseph. Here he is, innocently sent out, travels about 65, 70 miles away to go find his brothers, pasturing their sheep. In those days, they wandered off to go and find fresh pastures before they would return home. And you feel this sense of looming danger, don't you, as Joseph wanders off into a distant, anonymous place, far away with this seething brood of hateful brothers. It's like that moment in in horror films where someone walks into a dark basement. You're like, what are you doing? (laughs) Or into the wood to go and look for someone. You think, no, this is what happens to Joseph. He wanders off and you feel the doom laying, hanging over him as the brothers begin to plot murder in their hearts. And things quickly turn around for him from favored, pampered son to being sold as a slave into Egypt. Pain. God allows him to endure pain. And friend, it seems to me that this is part of what the Bible tells us God does in all of us when he wants to call us and set us aside for his plans and purposes. Hebrews 12 puts it like this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Please note, it does not describe this as punishment, but rather as discipline. And there is an enormous difference, all the difference in the world. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How can you avoid this, you might ask? Well, you repent quickly. It's because of our stubbornness and our failure to repent that God has to subject us to these experiences to form and mold and shape us in order to make us useful. This is why the book of Romans keeps talking about the sufferings that Christians must endure as a good thing. He says, for example, in Romans chapter 5, That we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. In other words, there there are depths of maturity that you cannot reach unless you do go through pain. You may have been watching some of the feats of endurance on the TV from these extraordinary elite athletes been watching. How do they get to that competence and ability? Well, they endure countless hours of pain. That's how you do it. Pain strengthens you and prepares you and shapes you and forms you, sometimes at a very physical, visible level, as in their case, sometimes on the inside. Romans 8 puts it like this. Really an echo of what Joseph said to his brothers when he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. In Romans chapter 8, a verse which I think ought to resonate in the mind of every Christian. Every time you're exposed to things you cannot explain, understand. It says this, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those whom he foreknew. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
Friend, I want to draw to a close now, but essentially I want to just speak to you. This is resonating in some level. You're going through some pain or have done in the past and you think, I can't explain this. Maybe it's caused you to question whether God loves you, whether it's caused you to question the goodness of God fundamentally. What the story of Joseph tells us is really two things. First of all, it tells you God has a purpose and it is a good purpose. You see the sovereignty of God. And we'll get there. I know we've only read the first chapter so far. You see the goodness of God at work in this boy's life. The things that he could do that were impossible if it were not for the pain that he had to endure because God put him in it. And the second thing you begin to see as you look at the life of Joseph is that he begins to remind you of a savior who suffered in your place. Just thinking about this chapter we just read. In some ways, the sufferings that Joseph endures are Christ-like. He's mocked by his brothers who call him this master of dreams, just as Christ is mocked on the cross and said, Son of God, take yourself down from the cross. He's stripped of his expensive robe, just as Christ was stripped, stripped of his seamless garment that they gambled for, the soldiers gambled for. He's thrown into a pit, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was put into a tomb. He's betrayed by Judah, his older brother, for 30 shekels of silver, just as, or 20 shekels, just as Christ was betrayed by Judas for the 20 silver coins. He's betrayed by his own brothers, just like Jesus is betrayed by his own brothers, the Jews, and he's separated from his father. The greatest pain in Joseph's life, by the way, in the, the years to come will be the separation from Jacob, his father. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, endured separation from his father so that he could bear the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And I think the reason why God does this time and again through Scripture, where you see echoes and resonances of the Lord Jesus Christ in the stories of Scripture, is so that when we look at their story, we look beyond them to the Savior who died for us. And this helps us to look at our pain in its context. We recognize that whatever suffering we go through in life is not punishment for our sins. Christ was punished on the cross. It's rather discipline because now we're God's children. Christ has transferred you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the family of God. Now you're a son and not an exile or an outsider. And God will never punish you. But he will discipline you. And the full extent of his anger fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. He has spared you from that. But his love and commitment to you means this, that he will work in your life to change you and transform you by whatever means necessary. I want to lead you in a moment of prayer in order to respond to this. I know a number of you, I know what I mean to say is I know a num- the stories that you've been through, the pain some of you have been through in life and are, or are going through even now. We have to take comfort when we read about the hand of God at work in the lives of his children. God never abandoned Joseph. 
He was with him even as he's sold into slavery. In some ways, when God exposes you to pain, it's a ratification, a confirmation of who you are as his child. God wants to work in and through that experience. I want to pray with you. Father, we thank you that in your word you have revealed to us something of your plan and purpose and the way that you deal with us as your children. Father, our great challenge, our great difficulty is often in accepting what you've ordained. I pray that you'll begin to speak hope into hearts and minds and lives in this church. Where we look around and feel confusion and disorientation or reflect on experiences that have changed us permanently, left scars. I pray, Father, that you will instill within us something of the confidence and the theology of this man, Joseph, who began to understand and perceive your secret and invisible work in his life so that everything appeared different to him. And I pray, Father, that you'll bring us from a place of darkness and hopelessness to a place of light and hope. I pray most of all that we'll see Jesus, see his work on the cross, see his devotion to us, his love for us, and his willingness to die for us. And I pray these things in in the precious name of your son. Amen.